when I decided to teach this, this class, I decided on purpose not to teach topically in terms of, you know, unifying everything by a group of topics that we did. Instead, I decided I really wanted to offer you what, what was most challenging and interesting to me as lectures that I heard over either the summer or over you know, the winter period that we were together. So I have um, put together the, the ones that were honestly really challenging for me as, as well as interesting. Um, and so that's what I'm bringing you this week as well. I am bringing you the teaching of Mijal Bitton, M-I-J-A-L. Her last name is Bitton, B-I-T-T-O-N. She's a Sephardic Jew. She emigrated to the United States when she was 12 from Syria. She came to this country as an immigrant, and she is an expert uh, in the culture identity of Syrian Jews. She is an expert in Jewish identity, in particular Syrian Jewish identity. Uh, she is a doctor. Uh, she got her doctorate from New York University. Uh, she's, she's an amazing teacher. Um, we're very lucky to be learning with her, incredibly fortunate to be learning with her. Um, I told you on Friday's Torah study about a uh, podcast that I've been listening to. She's the female voice on that podcast with Yehuda Kurtzer, the president of Hartman North America. The class that she taught us, um, it was in the context of the 10-day the rabbinic, the rabbinic part where uh, everyone could come. Remember I told you a lot of us study for, you know, the, the cohort studies, the 27 of us study for a certain amount of time, and then rabbis descend from everywhere in the United States and in other parts of the world for 10 days. So she taught this as part of that 10-day component. The theme of the 10-day component was nationalism. So sort of in the context of nationalism, she's teaching us this course because she wanted to say if, there's, if we're only talking about um, Zionism uh, and certain parts of American uh, nationalism, we're, we're, we're missing some important things that are happening on the American landscape right now for, for uh, the Jews and for Jewish identity. I found her, her she or her lesson incredibly challenging. So I want to be clear about that. This is not a feel good class. This was really challenging. Um, and, I, and I think it was one of the most important things I heard in the last couple of years. So just like you heard the lecture that I gave you last time, I, I really think this is important for us to think about and be talking about, and it's challenging stuff. All right, what's the topic of her class? The topic is identity politics, colon, American Jews between power and vulnerability. Okay, identity politics, American Jews between power and vulnerability. All right, let's jump in. She says that the American Jewish experience, our collective experience as the Jews of America, has contributed to the narrative of American Jewish exceptionalism. We talked about this with Kurtzer, right? We talked about this last time. We talked about this idea of America is somehow an exception. America is different. She says, American Jews have looked at America as a promised land, as a land that if we only work hard enough, if we fight for our rights hard enough, we can actually achieve equality and dignity for all of its citizens. That is our narrative about this country. And it's based on our historical experience in this country. It's not just you know, a nice fairy tale, whatever. It's, it's actually been our experience. 
So, and remember, I'm doing this the same way I did Yehuda Kurtzer's class, which is I'm, I'm giving you her words. These are not my words. These are her words, and I will try as best I can to interpret um, what I found really interesting and challenging about her words. She says, our American Jewish narrative has seen America as an exception to the history of anti-Semitism and persecution of Jews that was the norm in Europe and many other countries from which we emigrated to America. This American Jewish dream, we can conceptualize as a minority narrative, right? So for us, we know that this is, we are a minority and we have experienced America as a minority and it's our minority narrative. And she says um, that we're gonna need to ask some hard questions about that narrative. She says that, that this, this narrative that we have has actually shaped the way that American Jews have behaved. Our, the way we behave is that if we made it here, and if we still have a memory of having once been oppressed, then we must be sure that we continue fighting the good fight to make sure that other people can make it as well. That's been how American Jews have behaved based on our experience in America. Right? If we made it and we've been oppressed, then we need to make sure that we are working to fight the good fight in this country to make sure all people here can make it. That's been our narrative. She says, this narrative has led many of us to speak about American values and Jewish values as either synonymous with each other or aligning very closely with each other. That's how I grew up. I grew up hearing in my house that the values that we had as liberal Jews were very much American values, right? Also liberal uh, or progressive American values. And she said, it's a very deep story that many of us hold dear and that shaped the ways that we orient ourselves as American Jews. The problem, or one of the problems that she wants to highlight is that this narrative, this American Jewish story is currently being challenged. Some would say, it's under assault. So that narrative that we've had, that we, comes out of our historical experience in this country that we've told ourselves that we grew up on, that it's under assault. She says, you can see it being under assault from the far right in America, from voices that tell us that the special relationship, meaning that exceptional relationship between America and its Jews is not a good or correct relationship. Voices that tell us that, in fact, Americanness and Jewishness are foreign and alien to each other, right? That's the, that's the argument from the right. There's a second assault that she's going to classify as coming from the left that tells us that America shows that we are not the natural allies in progressive alliances fighting for social justice. American Jews, specifically white American Jews, and people looking at her would not classify her as white, just looking at her, have benefited from white privilege and as such don't necessarily belong on the side of the marginalized. This is the, this is the argument coming from the left. Maybe we have more in common with the side of those who are perpetuating oppression rather than those who are marginalized. Right? So on the right, we're not white, and America shouldn't have a relationship with Jews. It's not good for the country. On the left, the critique is we are white, 
And we don't have natural allies in those that are fighting for social justice in progressive circles. All right. She says, both of these challenges are critically important at this moment, but she wants to focus, she, with us, she focused, um, on the challenge from the left. And she said, I do so because as most American Jews, according to many studies, she says, I am a liberal Jew, meaning lots of us right, are liberal. And she says, ideologically, I grapple with and struggle much more with the challenge from the left than the challenge from the right. Like, what's really challenging about the right? We know, we know this, right? This is, we, we've been around this our entire history. That, that's nothing new. It, it might have different permutations and different things we need to consider or talk about. She's, she was interested in us and, and us exploring with her the argument from the left. Here's the argument from the left. You American Jews have negotiated an identity that benefits from white privilege. You've negotiated an identity that benefits from systems that directly serve white people. And that means that you have to actually own that privilege and think about it and think about yourself as powerful. All right, that's the argument from the left. You don't get to be part of Right, this whole oppressed minorities fighting for the rights, blah, 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 you're in power. Another part of this critique says, you American Jews have this beautiful story of American Jewish success and exceptionalism, and exceptionalism in America, but this story is at best a myth and at worst an erasure of many other minority populations who have not been served by the American dream and who have not had the same access as you have had. Number three, perpetuating and continuing that narrative is actually maybe an insult or continues perpetuating the oppression against other groups. And if you want to join us in intersectional alliances, then you have to come not as a natural ally of another vulnerable population, those folks who are vulnerable, who identify with social justice movements on the left, you have to come as people who own and recognize and explore your power and privilege. That's the argument she wants to look at. And she wants to look at it honestly. And she wants us to look at it. And she's talking to the leaders of the world's you know, Jewish communities. All right. She says, where, do, where can we see this right now? What are some examples of this? The controversy around the Women's March and remember the dyke march, what happened with the dyke march, that, that um, gay folks weren't allowed to march with a rainbow flag that had a Magen David, a Jewish star, on it. He says, these examples are not only troubling and painful, they're also tearing our communities apart. Right? The communities we belong to are not just Jewish communities. So the communities in which it's this app, like for me, I'm a dyke. Like I'm, in, I'm, I'm one of the people affected by being told by that community, you don't get to march here because you're a Jew, right? Or you, you have a Jewish symbol that's a symbol of oppression of the Palestinian people. So it, it really is for some of us, it's tearing our communities apart. That doesn't mean the Jewish community, it means right the communities that we're a part of also outside of that. And it's causing really painful conversations and really, um, a lot of tortured conversation. It's not, it's, right now it's not healthy, good conversation. It's really tortured. 
She says, I want to take the critique of the left seriously because we're of the left, right? We're, a lot of us are on the left in terms of the values that we hold, the ways we go about things, what we care about, the vulnerable populations that we want to work on behalf of, those who are not served right now by the American dream. That's what we align with. So she wants to take the critique of that, of the left really seriously and do some really hard work uh, around holding some of those critiques and questions. She says, I wanna have a generous understanding of the critique and confront it in a real way. And she wants to pose two questions. Question number one is more, she says, of a diagnosis. Why does this critique feel so disorienting and destabilizing to some of us? Um, and she says, the second question is if we confront this critique in a real way, what is implicated for us in our moral responsibility? She's challenging a room of 250 rabbis to think about this. There's not a, not a bigger room where you're going to drop a question like that and have people take it seriously. All right. The first question that she says, uh, why does this critique feel so disorienting? And she said uh, that part of it, um, is that the reason the moment right now is so disorienting and challenging is because it's actually based on new developments. There's new stuff happening. So we actually are not oriented in some ways because it's new. What's happening right now is new. And she's going to unpack some of what she sees happening. Um, she says part of what's new and difficult, uh, disorienting and messy and challenging about this moment is that there's a dissonance and a misalignment between the way that we see ourselves and the way that other minority groups in America see themselves, okay? So there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a disalignment going on that we are not just any other minority. There's something messy and there's something dissonant about how we see ourselves as a minority and how other minorities see themselves. All right, she's going to uh, talk about uh, in her argument about like there's new stuff going on right now and there's a misalignment, she's going to make an argument um, that presents three different historical phases. Um, and she says each of these phases um, are describing American Jews trying to answer the question of what does it mean to advocate for yourself as a minority population? That's a question we've had to ask since we got here. Right? If you're a minority, and not just when we got here, anywhere we've been, but, but we're looking at the American contemporary uh, experience. And so when we ask, what does it mean to advocate for ourselves as a minority population? There are three phases, historically. One, what is good for the Jews and what is good for other minority communities is to advocate for the rights of everyone. This is how I grew up. My mother was part of the civil rights movement. Like we, we had to go and work for the first black mayor that got elected in Atlanta. I had mimeograph ink all over my hands because that's what we did on the weekends was volunteering to make you know, flyers for him on a mimeograph machine. Oh, that smell, I can still smell that smell. Oh my God, it's <laughs> so, um, but And then we had to you know, hand him out door to door. And so like my parents understood the way it's gonna be best for Jews as a minority in this country is to work for the rights of all minorities, right? A rising tide raises all boats. That's, I totally am familiar with that argument, uh, that phase. Phase two, she says, 
what is good for the Jews and for other minority communities is for groups to advocate for themselves. Meaning mostly or just for themselves. That's the best way to get your group into a better position is to just advocate for your group. Number three, phase three, which I think she, she believes we're in now, what is good for the Jews, we don't know yet. We're still struggling with it. We're still trying to get our heads around it. And you'll see by the end, like what she's talking about. All right, number one, what is good for the Jews and for other communities is for everybody to advocate for the rights of everyone, right? She says, if I were to describe historically the time I'm thinking of for phase one, it would be the late 1800s and the first half of the 20th century. That's phase one. A time in which American minority groups who were vulnerable advocated for themselves in the public square by actually saying we need equal rights for everybody, not just for our group, right? And we're all familiar like with, you know, a lot of where that comes from and what that looked like. She says, this is a time of mass immigration to America. It's also a time of rising nativism and anti-Semitism. A time in which American Jews feel vulnerable and in which they have to figure out how to advocate for their own safety and security in this new country. The strategy that they adopt, she says, is a strategy in which you go into the public square and you say we need equal rights for all. Part of your hope, of course, is that those equal rights will trickle down to your group. Okay. Two examples. In your packets, if you have that tab open, at rki.org slash Hartman, in your packet, she looks at Emma Lazarus, which she says she finds heartbreaking to read right now, given what's going on in our country. And she says a lot of people don't know that Emma Lazarus was a Sephardic Jew from a very old Sephardic family and was a serious Jewish activist. Like we kind of go, oh, and by the way, Emma Lazarus was Jewish. Like she, and and Mijal is, is arguing, not, not arguing. She's saying a lot of people don't know that Emma Lazarus was a very passionate Jewish activist. She was very concerned with Jewish immigrants suffering poverty and persecution uh, in this country, particularly Russian immigrants. Um, but when she wrote her famous poem, what did she write? Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. And Mijal says, she does not write, give me your Jewish tired, your Jewish poor, your Jewish huddled masses yearning to breathe free. She actually embodies a strategy and a set of values that to actually advocate for those who are vulnerable, if you really want to do that, you have to speak for everybody. If you want to advocate for Russian Jews who are immigrants to this country and vulnerable, you need to argue, give me all of your huddled masses, right? We, we are working on behalf of all your poor. Bring them here and we will, right? We will give everyone access to um, safety and the, and the means to be successful. She says, this signified a certain optimism that America can actually become the promised land for everybody. If we speak about the needs of everybody, we could argue, she's, she's saying, we could argue that this attitude um, really was the culminating, it culminated in the, rights, in the civil rights movement. So this orientation of Jews and other minorities, but, but, but Jews 
you know, in particular, that orientation to saying the way to lift all, you know, boats is to make sure the water rises equally and then we all benefit, that that's what leads to the civil rights movement. <clears throat> so in your packets on page three, there's a speech given by Rabbi Joachim Prince, who was a refugee from Nazi Germany. Um, and he gave a speech uh, in the same march in which uh, Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech. Uh, and he talks in that speech, this rabbi does, who was fleeing Nazi Germany, uh, about all Americans overcoming racism and needing to have an American dream for all Americans. So he's marching with King in the March on Washington Right? Saying, quote, and it's in your source packet. When I was the rabbi of the Jewish community in Berlin under the Hitler regime, I learned many things. The most important thing that I learned under those circumstances was that bigotry and hatred are not the most urgent problems. The most urgent, the most disgraceful, the most shameful, and the most tragic problem is silence. A great people, which had created a great civilization, had become a nation of silent onlookers. They remain silent in the face of hate and in the face of mass murder. America must not become a nation of only America. It must not remain silent, not merely black America, but all of America. It must speak up and act from the president down to the humblest of us. Listen to the following and not for the sake of the Negro, not for the sake of the black community, but for the sake of the image, the idea, and the aspiration of America itself. So she says, those are, that's some pretty powerful stuff right there. And uh, that those words embody a certain attitude that existed not just for American Jews, but for other minority communities. Um, and when you believe you're trying to make America live up to its ideals, and if you're trying to advocate for certain groups and America living up to her ideals, then you have to advocate for everybody. Um, and she said the civil rights movement was led by leaders across racial lines, across religious lines of people who said that for us to succeed um, on and, and any of these causes, we have to work together across those lines. What is good for the Jews and other minority groups is to advocate for the rights of all. That's phase one. Right. Phase two. She says, it's characterized by the rise of identity politics. Have you heard this term? <laughs> Shelly's groaning over there. I can hear it, even though she's muted. Um, the rise of identity politics. And she says, forget the way that you read about identity politics in the news today. That doesn't, I mean, yes, that, that, there's something to that for sure. But that's, she, wants to, she wanted to get us to the point where we understood what's, what it is really about so that we can then unpack what's actually going on today. Um, so she says, um, when historians talk about identity politics, um, especially in the 60s, it's basically about embodying a political identity and the mode of political organizing that's about being proud of your group identity and organizes politically around that group identity. That's identity politics. Okay? So whatever it's come to mean, she wants to bring us back to the basic definition, which is Counter to phase one in some ways, phase two says, no, the best way to raise my boat is for me to go to the deep end of the pool. Probably a terrible analogy, but like, right, it's not, it's not that we raise all boats. If we want the Jewish boat to rise, we better be worried about the Jews. Um, 
All right, so that's what that's what's going on with um, identity politics. There's a sense of pride and association um, around um, arguing and, and working on behalf of the and organizing around group identity. And she says, okay, if you're dealing in identity politics, what's the best way to achieve this? Many would say that you have to work with people from your own group first. You have to separate from like movements in which everybody works together and you have to embrace an ideology of separatism. That's how you work for your group. That's phase two. So if you're, let's say you're, you're organizing or advocating for Latin, the Latin community, then you work with the Latin community, right? And if you're advocating for black American interests, you work with black folks. And that is what we see in the, she says pro probably one of the best examples of this is the work of Malcolm X, right? So you all know uh, Malcolm X. And she says, this is kind of, um, he's seen by many as a foil to MLK, right? So we just read from MLK and that era of everyone has to work together, lifting all boats, blah, blah, blah. Um, and she says Malcolm X was the foil to that, and, we, and it's continued um, forward into, obviously, today, where he says uh, no, <laughs> right? He really embodied this, um, this attitude uh, that the need to work for the black community meant you, you needed to work for the black community uh, within the black community and for its own interest and to not actually become integrated with other people and their interests. But that just kind of weakened the the work. He gave a speech uh, shortly after the march in Washington that we just talked about. Uh, he was cri very critical of that march. And here's, here's what he said at that march that I think, like, and she believes, like, is like, it's the crystallization of his um, philosophy. And I quote from him, it's like when you've got some coffee that's too black, which means it's too strong. What do you do? You integrate it with cream. You make it weak. But if you pour too much cream in it, you won't even know that you ever had coffee. It used to be hot, it becomes cool. It used to be strong, it becomes weak. It used to wake you up, now it puts you to sleep. What he's, and that's the end of the quote. And she says what he's advocating for in those words, um, what the rise of black militancy and black power and the Black Panthers and even different movements advocating for LGBTQ rights and feminist groups, which we're seeing at the Dyke March, um, all these other groups that are based around racial, ethnic, and sexual identities, what this orientation says is that to actually advocate for our groups, we have to work with our groups and we have to be explicit about our own interests. That's the underlying ideology, she argues, of identity politics, okay? All right, well, we live in the shadow of that and we're seeing it you know, in different ways, really active right now. She says, so what are the consequences for American Jews of, of the rise of identity politics? And, and she talks about two. And she says, the first is, which we're, she said to us, which we're not gonna focus on in this time that we have together in, our, in this lecture, she said, um, what, but, but the first one uh, is what historians describe as the purge of white American Jewish leaders from the civil rights movement and a growing rift between different leaders in the civil rights movement. She says that's a consequence that a lot of people talk about, but she, she, she didn't want to spend a lot of time talking about that. It, it just felt really obvious to her, right? That there was a purge of white leadership uh, from the civil rights movement and a growing rift in the civil rights movement between uh, leaders from different backgrounds and, and with different um, interests. Right. 
she wants to go to the second the second uh, consequence. And she talks about a scholar, uh, a, a class of scholars, but one of them that she quotes is Mark Dillinger. And she says, he's argued the following. American Jews actually learned from identity politics. Jews learned from the strategies and the goals of identity politics that if this is what's happening, if all these groups are advocating for themselves, shouldn't we also start you know, speaking and acting openly as American Jews? Shouldn't we start having more pride, more visible pride in our American Jewish identity? So there are some scholars who are arguing that we actually learned as a community from identity politics. We weren't just left out of it, right? We were impacted and influenced by it, and it started to characterize and shape some of how we started to, uh, to advocate for the rights of people, uh, of the Jews in this country. Uh, so in your packet on page four, there's a quote from his book. Um, and he says, as one example, as Donald Feldstein, an education consultant hired by the National Jewish Welfare Board to study college-age Jews reported in 1970, quote, it is no longer embarrassing or out to belong to a group on the college campus with the word Jew in the title. He noted literally scores of Jewish groups forming on college campuses across the country with aggressively Jewish missions that imitated the spirit, the style, and the tactics of the new left and black militants. We see other things in American Jewish experience that signify an inward turn and in investing in our own interests. So this whole rise of, you know, Hillel, it's a great thing, like, you know, be a part of it, the Jewish Students' Union, like, there's, all of a sudden we start to see Jewish and Jew being used in a way that Jews are no longer um, hiding from that label, that they're starting to identify with the subgroup, they're starting to identify with their um, Jewish identity, and, and putting that out front uh, as people who uh, are in the um, identity politics world we're doing also. All right. Um, she also, in your packet, it's, it's, uh, it's page five and six, where she, she gives some quotes and some texts uh, about the rise of Zionism as a commitment. When most American Jews, uh, when we adopt Zionism, that's a way, in some ways, right, of, of doing identity politics. Um, she says, the movement to save Soviet Jewry a movement in which American Jews marched in the streets with visible Jewish symbols, which wasn't so common before that time. They're not marching in the streets saying we are looking for everyone's rights. They're saying we want to talk about a Jewish problem. And many of the ways in which some of us think the Jewish community is strong and robust might actually have been shaped by the rise in some ways of identity politics and our participation in them. All right, I want to stop there and just see, are there any questions I'm starting to feel Sorry, I know it's a lot. So um, I just want to see, if, is there anybody who needs to process anything about that? Are we taking it in? Are we all going, what the heck is she talking about? No, I'm following. It's, um, I think it's fascinating. Oh, damn. Okay, so you're still with me? Everybody still with me? Yeah. Rupert? Or is that Stacy talking? Yeah, I'm not sure. What's going on? Uh, what I was going to say is historically, the first thing you were talking about was we 
we will get our rights when we're for everybody's rights. I think uh, it's related to the history of the immigration. I think you said this in the late 19th century, in the early 20th century, the Jews were trying to be American and to fit in. And so that we're different from anybody else. And we, you know, it was, we wanted to be American. Uh, my parents who had, my grandparents were old, uh, old country, but my parents uh, wanted very much to kind of be American, you know, and not have the accent and not have the old uh, religion of the, uh, of the old country. So I think that was related very much to history. And yep. what you're talking about in terms of, of, of black power also is a function of the history and the position of Jews changing in the United States. That in the post-World War II period, yep. Jews had some very prominent positions in American life. Right. And so and at that point, they felt that they were, I mean, I, I, I think the point about Malcolm X is a very good one, but also at that point, Jews were feeling they were masters of industry, they were influenced. Okay, so we're, we're gonna get to that. We're totally gonna get to that. That's where she's going next. All right, so I wanna be clear, phase one is- Mute me. Hang on, all boats, right? Phase two is identity huh? politics. Huh? It turns out I can't teach without a whiteboard, and it's not about y'all, it's about <laughs> um, Right, so phase one is all boats rise when right when the water level rises. We have to work for everybody. Phase two is identity politics, and we're about to go into phase three, which is going to talk about some of what um, Bert, you're saying. Okay. Um, yeah. Can I ask a quick question? Um, I wanted to uh, uh, build on what Bert was saying in a certain way. <clears throat> I wanted. I was, is does she relate these developments to? Uh, the surrounding socioeconomic issues, because it sounds as though she's, uh, she's uh, doing that to a certain extent, but it's implicit, and that she's primarily focusing on the internal philosophical and political attitudes. Um, but um, the, uh, the move to identity politics is inherently a fragmenting and isolating uh, movement. And I wonder if she embeds that in a larger political uh, context. I, my, my hunch is she could do that with ease uh, mm -hmm. and grace. She's a genius, uh, but um, like her, she was trying to walk us through kind of these three phases and how we kind of hold a real relationship to the critique of the left right now when we're also freaked out. So yes, I'm sure she could give another two-hour lecture. Yes, on the context, like she talks about, also what was happening was the Six Day War and you know multiculturalism and ethnic revival that's happening in, in other. All of that's contributing to the rise of identity politics and that mood in the country. Um, so she totally understands the larger context. Um, but a a I had 12 pages of notes from her typed. Um, so I'm like, okay, I gotta, I gotta pare this down. But Mark, it's a great question, um, and I would love to see you two in conversation about it. That would be awesome. Amy, there's been a, the issue too about when the Jews came here, they they were very active in the unions, and they were in the working class, and they advocated for the working class. Mm -hmm. And I think 
along with what um, Bert was saying, I mean, there was that, that need to, the need for assimilation, but the, the, being the membership in the unions kept them sort of grounded in the, in the workers' movement. Mm-hmm. And I think as the unions, over the years, as the unions broke up and, and as we became less of the working class, I think some of that contributed to what, what we see here. Yep. Amy? Yeah? I, I remember in the 50s when the marches were going on and I was marching in the South, and Schwerner and Cheney were two of the first to die, uh, white Jews, and they were, they were part of my inspiration for the water rising should mean that everybody rises at the same time. I believe so strongly that we should be out there because if anyone is a slave, we are slaves too. And, and it was a very important part of my, my growing into being a Jew. Yeah. And for many of us, it's what, it, what, it's what um, excited and kept us in the Jewish community. It's what excited yeah. me about being Jewish and my Jewish identity, was that that was, those were the politics of my family, you know, that like you. Right. Like, and other people I saw, you know, Heschel, marching with your feet, that I was taught. Right. I mean, sorry, praying with your feet, you know, was marching with King. I, I was like, who wouldn't be proud of the heritage that says, y'all Amen. are suffering, we're with you because we suffered, you know, and we know what that is, and but, I, I 100% agree. Um, Susan, were you trying to say something or are you just making noise over there? Um, no, no, I'm not making noise. I'm trying to get the picture back. Got it. Okay. So you all know when you're not muted, if you hear noise, if the, if the Zoom hears noise from you, your box gets ringed in a bright yellow box. Or there's a yellow line under you. So I'm, I'm always trying to figure out, does that mean you're trying to speak or just that there's noise going on? Okay. So phase one, um, work on behalf of everyone. That's what's best for the Jews. Number two um, is now things starts to split more into identity politics and we see more Jewish pride and, and Jewish, you know, work on behalf of specific Jewish interests, including Zionism, you know, and the state of Israel. Um, that, that's certainly specifically Jewish, right? So we see all of that. Um, st- we see a lot of that in the Jewish world, um, not just that it left us out. All right, let's look at phase three. What does she talk about with phase three? Um, she says... To under, uh, phase three is to understand that part of the problem and the disorientation that we have right now has to be understood um, in the different narratives that are having to coexist. The post-war era, the 70s, 80s, um, Jews in America became wealthier. She's talking really about, I mean, it took a while, but in the 70s and 80s, Jews become wealthier they move to the suburbs, they negotiate a wider identity, and they negotiate a white identity, which means they were seen and treated as white. They became more politically powerful. In a sense, they were still a minority community, but if we talk about minority communities, not only in terms of numbers, but in terms of power, they benefited much more right, from the majority social structures. So if you want to talk about a minority, you have to define what's a minority. If you're just talking about, okay, they're little, yes, we were still a minority. But if you want to turn, if you want to talk about minorities in terms of empowerment, who has access to the halls of power and who doesn't, Jews were becoming much more 
uh, a group that benefited from the majority social structures. She says, none of these trends or developments preclude or take away from the fact that American Jews, even as they became more powerful and wealthier and whiter, still had a very strong memory of having been oppressed and having been marginalized and having been vulnerable. And in some sense, American Jews wanted to both enjoy their place in America while still remembering or talking about vulnerability. She says there's something almost paradoxical about this because scholars who talk about this time period say all the old problems that Jews used to have of discrimination and anti-Semitism became a lot less in this period. So while we're hanging on to an identity that's around vulnerability and persecution and blah, 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 we're actually living in a time and in a country where that really had been lar like largely reduced. She says, the new problems Jewish leaders start talking about is the, prob is the problem of too much acceptance. What are those problems? Anybody want to give me the word? Assimilation and loss of identity. Right? Loss of identity. That, that starts to become the issue. That starts to become the challenge. And certainly, we're living in that reality, right? Where it's like, not only are we not dealing with anti-Semitism, not only do we not feel like we're not considered white, not only are we not benefiting from the majority structures in this culture, we are too liked. They want to marry us. <laughs> All right. So, so one thing that's happening, right, is this uh, American Jewish historical development of more power while still maintaining a consciousness of vulnerability. I found this fascinating. I think this is exactly what's happening right now. Exactly. And it's why Jews are nuts. It's why you cannot have a sane conversation um, between two Jews sometimes, right? We, or within your own Jewish community around some topics like Israel or this or that. I think this is at the heart of a lot of what's going on for us. I want to get to her and not my commentary. All right. At the same time that scholars describe the left activist and progressive activist, specifically black activists, begin developing a more and more binary notion, a rigid notion of people who are powerful and people who are powerless, we're back in the sentence before that. Right? So, so what's happening is in the activist circles, the progressive activist circle, specifically the black activist circle, what's developing is a more and more binary understanding of who is powerful and who is powerless. People who are white and people who are not white. People for whom the American dream works and people on whose backs that American dream has been built. There was something both ideological and politically strategic about saying that we need to maintain the separation between those who are powerful and powerless. Let me say that again. It's both an ideology, there really are those who are powerful and those who are powerless, and it's politically strategic to do kind of an us and them, power, no power. And that's the binary. She sees, so you begin to see a little bit of tension between these two things. We have an American Jewish community that has a bit of a messier narrative, wanting to inhabit both powerfulness and powerlessness. 
And we have a rising consciousness that says in, in, the, in the country that you can't have both. You have to pick a side. All right. So that you begin to see some of what she's identifying, or not her, but she's, you know, as a scholar, she's analyzing the literature and, and, and she's lifting up. This is what's starting to really disorient a lot of us. The crazy is real. Right, because we're living in an age of binary power, powerless, while the Jews are powerful and yet holding this narrative and this understanding and this really lived experience, right, of vulnerability and powerlessness. So, in in the packet uh, that you'll access online and read at your leisure later, um, she she uh, quotes an essay by the author and civil rights activist James Baldwin the rise of what he calls Negro anti-Semitism, which for me is a particularly painful thing to see. Um, like I said, like Judy talked about, and I know many of you, you know, such a deep attachment to the alignment of Jewish values and the American civil rights movement, such a deep alignment between the, the progressive liberal Jewish community and active, you know, social justice, social activist community, and the black community. Um, having grown up in the South, this was a huge part of my growing up, it was a huge part of my identity. Um, th those were aligned, that's what I'm saying. Th not that I'm, you know, th that's, that's was a huge part of my identity, that that was aligned in lockstep. Civil rights and progressive Judaism were, were almost identical in terms of what we believed, what our values were, what our ethics were, the texts we would have quoted, right? It, it was totally my theology. It was totally my understanding of the Jewish prophetic texts. Um, and I, it's, it's heartbreaking. It, it broke my heart when I really started to come into contact, probably in college, um, with black anti-Semitism. So um, James Baldwin is writing about this. He was, he was trying to grapple with the growing tensions between the black community and the Jewish community. And he, he's actually trying to understand what gives rise to these tensions and what's making it so fraught. And he basically comes to a, a conclusion that says, you can't have it both ways, Jews. You can't. You can't benefit from systems that exploit minority populations and keep talking about yourselves as vulnerable. You can't. It becomes painful and perverse and it, harms, and it harms relationships between communities when you do that. These are his words. Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry, that's her words about what, what he's writing. And she says, this is not easy stuff to read if we're honest with ourselves. Um, and he, the piece that's in your packet uh, that, she, that we read together uh, as a community was really hard. It was really hard. So I'm gonna read you uh, some of it. So he's talking about Jewish slumlords who own the property where black people uh, live and those Jews live somewhere else where, because they're white, where black people aren't allowed to live. He says, it is bitter to watch the Jewish storekeeper locking up his store for the night and going home with your money in his pocket to a clean neighborhood miles from you, which you will not be allowed to enter nor can it help the relationship between most blacks and most Jews. One part of this money is donated to, the, to civil rights in the light of what is now known as the white black, as the white black. I might have a typo here. This money can be looked on as conscience money 
merrily as money given to keep the nigger happy in his place and out of white neighborhoods one does not wish in short to be told by an american jew that his suffering is as great as the american negro suffering it isn't and one knows that it isn't from the very tone in which he assures you that it is the full uh you have to look at your packet because mine is from a, a transcript and so something's wrong here and if we're honest it brings up difficult questions for us to grapple with. This is now uh, Dr. Bitan talking. It brings up difficult stuff for us to talk about. But Baldwin um, is, is saying that he, what he's pointing to is, an, is a, an example of the systems which helped Jews become prosperous and powerful while simultaneously um, oppressing uh, black folks and, and other people of color. So that's one text she brings. Uh, and the other um, she talks about is the GI Bill. Uh, that scholars are looking to the factor of the GI Bill that really helped a post-war Jewish community prosper. As we all know, uh, it went to veterans and helped them get low interest loans um, you know, uh, so they could go to college or purchase homes and achieve a sense of financial security. It's one of the ways in which American Jews, American Jewish veterans coming home actually became wealthier and achieved prosperity in America. In theory, it was great, of course. But in practice, what we, hindsight shows us, um, what wound up happening and what historians like have proven is that the GI Bill was actually structured in a way that accommodated Jim Crow. So though in theory it was meant to help all American veterans, what happens when you have banks who refuse to serve black Americans and give them loans? What happens when you have neighborhoods that don't allow black Americans to buy homes there? What happens when you have colleges uh, that won't admit them? What happens, and it's not intentional, she knows that, but what she's saying, but what winds up happening is that we've achieved power and prosperity in part by benefit, in large part sometimes, by benefiting from systems that directly benefited white people and excluded black Americans. We continue talking about ourselves as vulnerable, but we aren't. We're powerful. And that's the critique from the left that we actually, and I want you to hear this, it was really hard for me too, <laughs> but I really want you to hear this. She says, we're powerful. And that's the critique that we have to actually take inside our heart and grapple with. And we have to do a cheshbon anefesh, an accounting of the soul, an accounting of our actions and of ourselves. And in some ways we may need to do tshuva, repentance, right? And look at what tshuva actually looks like to figure out what we could do in terms of making things better and repairing the system that has been in fact beneficial to people who, who are identified as white and disadvantageous to people who of color. She says there have been several developments that have happened that make the story even more complicated. So you got phase one, you got phase two, you got phase three. What's phase three? We have, right? We need to work for everybody. Then we get identity politics. And in number three, what was phase three? Black anti-Semitism. Uh, so this, this disorientation. We have power because we're white and we have money. And 
we want to hang on to a narrative of powerlessness because that's our experience also. And we're carrying that with us. So we're trying to balance these, these, these identities of being both powerful and powerless in a time where the focus is on the binary. The focus is on you can't be both. You can only be one. You're either powerful or powerless. And we are living in this weird, disorienting, clumsy, messy middle. And that's why we feel so off balance which I think is a hugely helpful insight, a hugely helpful insight to me anyway, right now, because I feel pretty disoriented as a lesbian, as a feminist, as a Jew, as a whatever, like say, wait a minute, you get to decide that I'm more a Jew than a dyke? Like what? Who, when did that happen? <laughs> what? Like, it's just so confusing and so, upsetting um and so like to have some language for it and to have some ways to put some um some categories to it is very helpful for me so i'm always trying to bring forward for you um from hartman what was helpful for me all right so uh anything anybody wants to say around that stuff before we move on to now she's going to complicate it a little bit Okay, I got it. She's going to complicate phase three with anti-Semitism. So don't go there. She's going to go there. Okay. Well, I'm just going to say what you were describing as the attitude of Jews are powerful and Jews exploit is an old story. Not so wait, wait. So, so you're going to get there. Okay. 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 Uh, and you were talking about anti-Semitism on the left. Does she also address the issue of Israel? What do you mean? Well, the issue that Jewish support of Israel has become a, it, it's part of the left's critique of Jews. She wants to argue, I, I, don't, I want to be careful because I don't want to misrepresent her, but my understanding of what she was saying is Zionism is a part of identity politics. That, is, that was our leaning into identity politics. We align with Zionism. Jewish nationalism is arguing Jewish strength, Jewish pride, advocating for Jewish. Well, I'm getting to the story of, of the exploitation of the Palestinians. Okay, that, that's not where we are yet. That's, what oh, that, that's not yeah. where she went. She okay. did not go there. But, okay. but, I, think, but I, think the, um, the, I think you're right in terms of it lines up with that idea that we're white and they're brown. So it lines up with that idea that you can't, as Israelis who are white European rich people. But they're you, not. You, you can't be vulnerable and powerless at the same time that you are making decisions about and persecuting brown people who don't have the money that you have, who don't have the access, who don't have the resources. I think that lines up pretty, you know what I mean? I think that lines up to your point, right? Like it, it's totally in line with this argument. We hear it like all the time, I think. So thank you for bringing in the, um, the Israel aspect of the crazy. <laughs> my, my point was that a lot of the, particularly in the Democratic Party today, the left of the Democratic Party to some extent is anti-Israel Okay, so but I want to, I want, I want to not go. I want to state what she's at the meta level that she's talking about, which is power. Because Bert, you're right. 
but stop, but don't use the word Israel. Use the word power. You're powerful. The, I'm serious. I think this is the way to approach. I, I don't know. I, I, can't, I don't want to speak for her. But she's, she's, she's arguing the left's critique of Israel is that you're white and powerful and you're oppressing the brown, poor, poverty-stricken Palestinians. That's not untrue on some level. It fits right in to the rest of it. Like, if that's your argument, you, is what you're arguing against American Jews, it works the same way with white Israeli Jews. And um, anyway, so I, I want to go too into the weeds there, but thank you for, for lifting up, because I, I think that is part of the left's criticism. Israel's powerful. You can't claim you're both, and this is what Hartman said, remember when we studied the, um, what was the first lecture? Doniel led us, and when we did the I Engage program, he said, we've got to get past that kind of language of either we're so powerful, we have the best military, it's the safest place for Jews in the world, we have to support Israel, because where are we all going to go if we're threatened? We're going to go to strong Israel. Oh, Israel's tiny and weak, and right, oh my gosh, everyone picks on us, and, and we're going to get decimated, and the world community is going to kill us. Like, we're gonna, they're all going to kill us. You, you can't have it both ways. It's the same narrative we're talking about here, I think. You know, I think there's something else, too, involved very quickly. Um, just in terms of the sense of disorientation, uh, in that these large-scale um, applications of, of power relations and dynamics really don't uh, mesh very well with two other things that are very much involved. One is, uh, I think, an underlying psychological dynamic of moving from uh, a kind of ability to, to accept other people to the second phase of a much more narcissistic position and finally to a position in which Envy predominates uh, the uh, organization, and that I think, um, when when uh, Jews or others are then categorized uh, in terms of power dynamics, uh, without uh, reference to those underlying uh, emotional dynamics and the uh, the commitments and beliefs of large numbers of people. Um, I think that you, you begin to deal with something that is simultaneously a very accurate description of social dynamics and a very inaccurate description of how people experience it and make commitments of the value commitments and, uh, and relate to other people. Right. All right, so let's complicate it. So she says what makes some of this even more complicated is the rise of anti-Semitism around the world, um, but the rise of Amer uh, anti-Semitism in America. That has really complicated, right, a lot of this. And she said it, it's reared its head, obviously, in this country in a way that has shocked us um, to our core. It has seriously shocked us. Um, and she said, you know, we thought America was better than this. So we thought this couldn't happen anymore in America. Uh, and we had this beautiful American story that America was exceptional, that America was a safe refuge in which anti-Semitism wouldn't flourish. But unfortunately, um, 
we we've paid with Jewish life, right? For for seeing what, what that actually means. Um, and she says, "Where am I?" Uh, she says, we've seen a rise in anti-Semitism that has reminded us that we're not only powerful, we're also vulnerable. Right? So we just went through this whole narrative about, you know, vulnerability, you associate with the minorities, then we're powerful, we're white, we have access to the halls of power, we're politically powerful, right? We live in the good neighborhoods and whatever. And so now we're criticized for that and the critique from the left and all of that. And now you add, now there's a rise in a surge in anti-Semitism which makes Jews feel vul really vulnerable again. So you begin, I think if you watch that map of what I just laid out, that makes for crazy, right? That makes for this kind of, no wonder we're feeling like disoriented and off balance and whatever uh, in this time. Uh, and so she, she gives this amazing example, which I want you to see in your packet. I, I do want you to look at that, or maybe I'm just saying it is enough to you, but in your packets, um, on the front page of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, a couple of days after the shooting in the Tree of Life synagogue, right, which killed 11 Jews as they got together for prayer, uh, on the front page of the Pittsburgh Gazette was words of Kaddish in the Aramaic, in the original, you know, Kaddish is in Aramaic. Um, so the Aramaic text was up there, and she says, like, this was both the power and vulnerability right there in one image. Why, how, how does it capture that? Because she says, that this is the front page of an American newspaper and it has Hebrew letters, the words of the Kaddish. She says, it's as if America is telling us your tragedy is our tragedy. Your words of mourning are our words of mourning. We mourn together. You are accepted here. You are one of us. If it happens to you, it's going on the front page of an American Jewish newspaper. Our words for mourning on the front page. Oh my God, like you're one of us. You are welcome here. Um, she says, she said there's something very powerful in the story of arrival, like that those words are on the front page of an American Jewish newspaper. Um, and she says, but it also indicates the vulnerability Right, because why are those words on the front page of the newspaper? Because Jews were murdered just for getting together, right, as Jews. Because they were Jewish, it reminds us, um, you know, that, that that's why they were killed, and you know, that's why Jewish schools and institutions have to have security today, right? And, and we have to pay for added security. Um, so she says there's something very complex and very messy about the current American Jewish moment. When we ask what is good for the Jews right now, she said, if we're honest, it's really hard to answer. It's really hard to figure out. It's not just phase one, phase two. Like it's, it's really hard to answer right now. She said, part of the reason why it's hard to answer is because our narrative, like she said earlier, is misaligned. We're speaking a different language from other minority communities. So other minority communities can say poverty, lack of access to institutional power, lack of access to this or that. That's not us. But, I mean, it's some of us, obviously, and she kept saying that over and over and over. I'm not talking about all Jews, obviously. Um, but, but she said, like, so that's not us. So what is that? You know, but yet we want to hold on to a narrative of being a vulnerable, oppressed minority. We're getting shot in our synagogues. So, like, it's not irrelevant. It's not, like, 
it, it isn't happening. So um, she says, uh, I, I want to get to a part that I really think is so powerful before we go into Pesach. She says, the left, the critique of the left is that we can't embody both. That's the answer to the first question. What was the first question? What's good for the Jews? How, how do you do this? She says, I want to go to the second question, which is, which is what is the moral responsibility we have if we take the critique of the left seriously? She says, that question is, what does it mean to confront? Uh, what does it mean to embody the complexity and not run away from the disorientation of the moment? The current moment presents us with the good news and the bad news. The bad news is that we've been here before. And this can either make you pessimistic or optimistic. Um, we've been here before, and our tradition has grappled with these questions before. We've, we've dealt with the issue of liminality, what it means to be between before, feeling both powerful and powerless, or at least being powerful and then very quickly being powerless. Um, I'm not going to go into it. You can look at uh, what I'm going to do because I love you um, is I'm going to send you my 12 pages of notes. So that if you want to look through this, and I skipped, you know, a lot, obviously. I'm going to send you this if you'll promise me that you will, if you share it with anyone, say this is Rabbi Amy's understanding of Dr. Bitan's lecture. These are not her, I mean, I, I took from the YouTube actual transcript, but, but I've misinterpreted and scrambled and whatever. So please, I'm happy to give this to you because it's, it's fascinating if you read through it. Uh, and your source packet is there that she gave us, but I just I don't want to misattribute something to her that people read here that they think is her and it's really me misunderstanding her. All right, so I'm gonna skip over this whole stuff she does about Joseph. Remember Joseph? Joseph is working for Pharaoh. He's kind of a empowered dude, right? His people come oppressed. His people come vulnerable into Egypt and they, uh, they don't come oppressed, sorry. They come as refugees to Egypt, so they're vulnerable. He's gonna take care of them because he's part of the majority, he's part of the power structure. So he takes care of them. Food starts to run out. He protects his family, but what happens with the Egyptians? They don't have money to buy grain. So he says, okay, that's no problem. Give me your, give me your cattle. So they give him that, then they don't have cattle. Now what are they gonna do? Well, give me your land. So he gets land for Pharaoh. And now they, have, they don't have that. Well, now they become serfs, right? So Joseph, with his access to power, right, makes all these other people vulnerable, whatever. But uh, it's fascinating when you, when you look at her analysis of it. And she says there's many ways to read that story, but she was reading it in the context of our conversation. And it's very interesting. Believe me, you who come to Torah study, I'll be preaching it uh, or teaching it and discussing it with you next year. She says, but she wants to go to Exodus, uh, or I want to go to Exodus, which is where she goes next. She says, every year Jews around the world sit in their seders and read the Haggadah, the story of Passover. And we don't talk about Joseph so much when we're sitting at our Passover seder. We talk about the Pharaoh that came after Joseph, the Pharaoh that the text tells us forgot Joseph. We'll remind ourselves that in just one generation, the fortune of Jews completely changed. Think Nazi Germany. Right, think wherever you want, but Joseph right, and his family and the people who you know were under that Pharaoh, boom, comes the next Pharaoh that forgot Joseph and what happens? 
She says, they move from being a protected, maybe even powerful minority to being not only slaves, but the target of genocidal policies by the new Pharaoh. Pharaoh was perhaps the first anti-Semite, the first one that pointed to us and said, this is a people that's different from us and wanted to attack us. Let us deal with them first before they can rise up against us, right? This is in Torah. She says, this might be the first conspiracy theory that we have in preserved text. By admitting that the narrative doesn't end in Genesis, but continues in Exodus, we remember again, and we have the scars to prove it, that power and success are contingent and that they are fragile. They are not timeless. They change. We have the scars to prove it. We have the scars to prove the fact that you cannot only talk about power without at least meeting the possibility of vulnerability. There are groups that can embody both both at the same time or very quickly one after the other. Like we're living with both, but you can have a, a community that's pretty powerful and then boom, right? Think about Rwanda, right? Think about you're pretty much equal or whatever and then boom, one of you is superior and the rest of you get your heads chopped off by a machete. That's really the message, the lesson of the Passover story, the Exodus story. I couldn't believe it when I read this. I was like, what? So amazing. That's really the message, the lesson of the Passover story, the Exodus story, the bitterness of the herbs, the bitterness of the maror is not only about the slavery. That's one form of bitterness. The other layer of bitterness is that we know how quickly things can change. There's something so painful about it that we know how quickly things can change, that we know cannot guarantee safety or prosperity. And like right now, I'm like, safety is just right now about, right for me, oh my God, like physical, like just, just breathing. We can't take for granted the ability to breathe. So if my first moral orientation, if I take the left's critique seriously, if my first moral orientation is that we have to grapple with our power, and she says we should take that seriously, if we have to grapple with the fact that we actually have power, she says if that's our first moral orientation in light of all this, her second moral or moral orientation is that American Jews have to speak confidently and have to push back against the argument that you're either powerful or powerless. We have to stand up and talk about both our historical and our contemporary scars. Talk about the fragility of Jewish power, the liminality of the Jewish experience, the complexity, the paradoxical nature of it. We have to push back against that part of the critique and say it's not fully one or the other. You cannot classify us as only powerful. We are powerful, yes, and we have to grapple with it. But we cannot only think of ourselves as powerful. We have to also grapple with our vulnerability. We have to grapple with the fact that we embody both power and vulnerability in a way that messes up the neat, category, the neat categories that underlie so many of the controversies and the critiques that American Jews are facing right now. Mm -hmm. That kind of shook my world. Um, when I left that room, I was like, oh my God, I so understand why it's so hard right now as an American liberal Democrat. Why 
it's like we hate that too. Are are we aligned in hating that? <laughs> like, right? We're already together in this, and then to have your own people turn and say no, 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 no. As a Jew, you are not a like. So it was so important for me to come out of that lecture, like understanding that there's words and language for the fact that we are so off balance right now. Um, and so we do need to take seriously the critique of the left. We do need to own our power. I think we do need to own our privilege. We need to talk about the ways that that's real. We need to talk honestly about the ways that our privilege has positioned us in America in ways that got Trump elected, right? That, that there are people who are hurting and people who are at the margins and people who are at the edges, people who are angry, people who are fearful. And like, I know that I was pretty tone deaf to a lot of that, I think. Um, and some of that has to do with my privilege. I, t I completely am ready to own that. It, I gotta be ready to own the other stuff too behind that, which is that I also stand on the shoulders of other people who benefited right from from white power structures that helped empower my my white Jewish forebearers. I have to really sit with that. I have to really let that in. And we have to push back against the part of the left. Because like, why bother with the right? Like, like the alt-right, forget about it. I mean, just, and I'm not trying to be exclusive here as a Democrat or a liberal. There's no reason to go to the right because there's nothing to say to them, right? We, we as as for the most part, liberal people in this country have to think seriously, though, about, okay, what is the, um, what, what is the way I have to have the courage to push back? And how do I use language? How do I use some of this? How do I use her analysis to start pushing back on some of the critique of the left that says, you have no right to talk about vulnerability. You Jews, you white rich Jews, you Israeli Jews who own everything and took over everything, you white Europeans who came in here and took everything away from our, 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 our Arab culture. Like, so I think she's making a very sophisticated, very nuanced, very important argument for our time about we're living in a real disorientation moment between being both powerful as white Jews connected. I mean, look at, look at our presidential candidates. They all have Jews in their family. That's, Oh my God, does it, right, really? And we're also experiencing being murdered in synagogues. Like, so to hold that moment, that existential tension between being both powerful and benefiting from the systems of power and holding this real history and current moment understanding of vulnerability and, and our ability to find ways to speak to this Jewish moment is, is really the challenge for me um, of our of our time um, when it comes to having really impassioned conversations with people um, it's it's a really a it's a real point of pivot for me that I'm trying to navigate and negotiate and I feel like her analysis was so helpful to give me some context and open me up a little bit and crack me open a little bit about facing some hard realities and I don't know. So I want to hear what you all want to say. I'm happy for all of you to leave who want to leave. Thank you for joining. Please tell your folks that it's not that hard to get on here. It really isn't. It's it's confusing, but once you get it, it's really not that hard. 
But if you'll tell people, because um, I think this is such an important conversation, because uh, that's why I do it at KI when we have 40 people as part of it. I don't care how many people show up. It's an important conversation, and I want as many people to be able to access this conversation uh, as possible. And I'm ready to hear your thoughts and reflections if you want to share them.